Okay, guys. Last week, talked about Denny's Pizza a little bit. It's amazing. If you haven't tried it yet, you got to hit that up. I order from Denny's Pizza constantly. Probably the main reason I order from them constantly is because I love pizza. When in reality, I order from Tenny's rather than all these other places because their pizza just tastes better. It's fresher. They make their dough fresh every day. They have better ingredients. They use super high-quality ingredients, guys. It's fantastic. you got to try this stuff. Not only do they have high-quality pizza, but my kids love it. They just pound the stuff. The Oreo pizza that just came out, they can't stop bugging me for it every night. What do you guys want for dinner? Oreo pizza. It's awesome. I just freaking love the stuff. Cool thing, too, is when you order from Tenny's, you can order through an app. They get it ready for you. You go pick it up. They'll deliver it to your house, whatever you need. The app is really easy to use. It's got all sorts of features. You pay right there in the app. So when you show up, you don't need to bring cash. You don't need to bring your credit card. You just show up, pick up the pizza, or if they show up at your house, you just sign the receipt, and you're good to go. Tenny's Pizza is where it's at, guys. Also, this week, in case you guys haven't heard, in Utah, Governor Herbert has declared this week as Prescription Opioid and Heroin Epidemic Awareness Week. That's quite appropriate because this whole episode that we're about to do We talk about the opioid addiction crisis for the first time. This is an issue that is not just near and dear to my heart. I am beyond passionate about addiction and how we need to help people who are suffering from addiction. A couple of quick facts. 72,000 people died last year from overdoses. That's 197 people a day. It's crazy. We talk about some of these facts in the podcast, so I'm really hoping you guys are able to listen to this. I know it's a little bit longer than ones we've done in the past, but because, well, it's longer because there's a lot more content in it that's really valuable. And the messages that are shared in here and the information in it is beyond compare. You're not going to get this kind of stuff anywhere else. We're talking about stuff that people refuse to talk about, are scared to talk about, and people open up about it every week. And that's why we're super excited about Um, what's going on with Finding Strength. So we want to be sure that we're sending out the message and we want to be able to get to that message, to get that message out to as many people as possible. A big part of that is we need sponsors. We're really, really grateful for our first sponsor, Tenny's, for hooking us up and believing in us so that we can get this message out to more people. We can get the equipment we need. We can get higher quality for you guys. As well, we can turn put money back into the podcast and you know market it and just spread the message spread the word of what finding strength is all about our hopes are really high and at right now our expectations are being met we have incredible growth every week more and more and more people are listening to this the word is getting out and we're stoked on the feedback that we're getting the change that's happening if you want to help us with change Please reach out to us via Facebook. You can reach out to me. You can reach out to Bethany via Facebook. You can also reach out to us through our Instagram. If you're not following either of those, be sure to follow us on Insta and Facebook. And if you want to sponsor, hit us up, please. We need people to support us so that we can spread this message. 
We really appreciate the support from everybody, and we're really excited about this new episode of Binding Strength, and we really hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening every week, guys. We freaking love the Finding Strength community, or posse, as Bethany so aptly has named us. Please stick around for this whole episode. Listen to it in a couple chunks if you need to. It's full of a bunch of magic, a bunch of good, good, good stuff. Love all you guys. Enjoy this one. people episode eight yeah yes we're doing awesome (laughs) guys we can't even i don't even know what to say like the feedback and the support from people has been incredible intense amazing we're just so grateful for the finding strength community that we still don't have a name for but we're so grateful (laughs) that works finding strength Posse. That's what we should call it. That's right. That's right. Uh, last week was awesome. Oh my I I seriously left here on like a high. Like I was so, and I I didn't do anything. Just a natural high. Uh, Gina was so awesome. Like she, I don't know what it was, but it was just like the energy in the room and just like her personality and her, she was so positive. It was, it was a really cool experience. She's she's like a person who's figured it out. I know. Right? Like she ha- she just she went through this really difficult thing and then came out on the other side and is better for it. And like understands gen- that. She seems genuinely happy. Like you yeah. can feel it. You don't yeah. she doesn't have to say anything. You can just feel it. It's really yeah. cool. She's a cool person to be around and we're excited to hopefully have her back. Um speaking of people who are genuinely happy. Ladies and gentlemen, Robbie Law in the house. <laughs> oh. Yes, we got our friend Robbie here hanging out with us. That's all it is, Robbie. You're just hanging out with me and Matt. It's like it's like a Friday night at my house. No big deal. I'm seriously so grateful. Like, why am I here? <laughs> why do you guys want to talk to me? Because you're amazing, man. Like Robbie, <laughs> you're just so cool. He is the coolest. <laughs> and I so Robbie and I, how long ago did we meet? We met. What, a over year this? ago? Six months? Not even... Like, we met within the last year, for sure. Yeah, it was probably like... A year ago. Yeah. And, that. and over, I would say the last few months, Robbie and I have really connected on a different kind of level. Just... I don't know what it it's is, Like man. a bromance. <laughs> a little bit. I would call it that, yes. A little, a little, a little bromantic. <laughs> More than anything, it's just... I respect the hell out of you, man. Because you have taken something... Uh, you have taken difficulty and turned it into amazingness like nobody else. And maybe other people have done it, but you've done it in your way. And I just, I admire that, man. And I, that's why I wanted to have you on here to kind of share that with the world. Like, you've done something that people want to do. And they're like figuring out, how do I do this? Because I sit down with people every day and they're like, my life's falling apart, man. I don't know what to do. Please give me some answers. And I look at them and I go, I don't really have any answers. Like, <laughs> I can ask you some questions, but you got to figure this out on your own. And you, Robbie, you figured that out. Man, can I ask you a question to start this? So yes. why do you think I figured it out? What are you talking about here, dude? Well, you either fake it really well or you got it figured out. Man. 
Well, I mean, well, I'll tell you the part that I definitely feel like I've figured out is I, I genuinely feel happy, like, the majority of the time, you know? So huge. Yeah. I've, not I've, a lot yeah. of people do. Well, I think, like, why we're... Some of the stuff we're going to talk about today is why... I mean, that problem existed because I was having a hard time finding that happy, you know? So now that I can just do it in my life, I think that is pretty... I'm happy about that. <laughs> okay, so Robbie, Robbie Law. <laughs> okay, so let's get down and dirty. No, I... Okay, so here's a funny little tidbit about Robbie Law. We grew up in the same city, <laughs> Orem, Utah, and he went to Orem High, right? Yeah. I went to Mountain View. We like had the same kind of friends, but we did not really know who each other were. And so when... And Kevin and Robbie knew each other, but weren't tight or anything, right? Back in the day. Kevin went to Orm High, but graduated two years before you, right? Yeah, two years. So, yeah. So, this is funny. Did you know this story, Matt? I know bits and... Sorry. I know bits and pieces of this, but I don't know the whole story. Okay. So, so funny. I feel like I don't know the whole story. Yes, I'm kind of do. excited to hear what he says. So, it's so funny. So, the first time Kevin's like, hey. I want you to meet this friend, Robbie. I went to school with him and really cool guy. I'm like, you know, thinking, great. I'm not a good people meter. <laughs> if that's liar. Bethany, <laughs> is it hard Best for you? Best people meter I've ever met. Continue. Go ahead. So we go meet Robbie and Annie, his wife, who is amazing. Seriously. And I was like, seriously, immediately we went to lunch. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he looks so familiar. <laughs> like, why does he now. look so familiar? I forgot familiar? that was the first time. I'm yeah. sorry. And then Robbie's like, do you know? I remember the names, but you were name dropping. Do you know so and so? Do you know? And I'm, and you said John Nelson. Yeah. And I was like, oh, of course I know John Nelson. I went to Dixie, and he roomed. His apartment was right behind mine, and he was totally my buddy down there. Like I was engaged to Kevin most of the time of my one semester of college. <laughs> <laughs> and John and Kevin were good friends, like grew up in the same neighborhood. So Kevin would come down to stay with me, like one, but he can't stay in my dorm or room, whatever you call it. So he'd stay with John. And so me and John, I got to know him through that and he played baseball and stuff. Anyways, so all of a sudden we're like, it was like this fun connection. Cause I'm like, oh, you went to Orm High and you knew this guy and this guy and this guy. I'm like, I knew all of them when we were younger. Well, and for me, I was like, I remember, because when you were at Dixie, I was at SUU for my one semester of college. <laughs> yes! <laughs> right? So, no, I went down to SUU, so I came down and hung out with John, because John's been a really good friend, but, you know, your husband, Kevin, is honestly, like, if I could talk about another bromance <laughs> without Matt. Like, Matt's eyes, like, got real sad when I started talking about Kevin's bromance, because he knows me and Matt are I'm really I'm romantic tight. with Kevin, too, so it's chill true. out. Okay. It's so true. Well, yeah, it's true. I love your face right now. I wish the podcast That's could what, Why do you think Kevin's like, you can, you can hang out with Matt anytime. He likes me more than you. It's fine. <laughs> I love Kevin, dude. No, but your husband, he's been really just such an important... Uh, it's, I mean, I knew him when I was little... But he was the guy I respected. Like, I just, I had a lot of respect for him. And, and so. I know. I, remember I, your story? How you're like, I heard the name Kevin Tenney. And I was like, 
that's a power name. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, he told me that. that. He, Kevin goes, yeah, when you were, when we, one time we were out and I can't remember where he, where he said we were, but I heard his name and I was like, you got such a powerful name, man. Kevin Tenney, that's a power name. So he said that from that point forward, he like had this like self-concept that he had this powerful name, you know? Which is funny because no one ever calls him Kevin. Well, I would say of our friends, it's always Kevin Tenney. Kevin Tenney. I'm like, <laughs> his name's Kevin. But for some reason, everyone has to put the Tenny with it. Even my kids have to put the Tenny on their name. Yeah. But that's what you, like, okay, that's a little snippet of, like, the Robbie Law way. <laughs> but that's what you do, man. Like, you take people and you magnify them. You take small things. This is what I, well, this is my interpretation of, of what you do. And you get to tell us kind of what you do now, but maybe even tell your story a little bit. Just starting from wherever you want to start. doesn't really matter. It's kind of free-flowing in case you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> in reality, though, like you are a magnifier of human beings. You see someone and you make them better. If you say so, man. <laughs> okay, I want to... We're going to go way back. Because I know how I knew most of your friends is baseball. Yeah. So baseball was a big part of your life. Right? Baseball was my life, like everything. Like For how my, long? Like years? I don't remember not having it be a part of my life. I woke up with a self-concept of baseball being important <laughs> because I came from a baseball family. Yeah, and like your dad played so my uncle. So my uncle Vance played for the Cubs, and okay. so I grew up, you know, when I was nine years old, he was playing at Wrigley Field, and I was watching on WGN, and I just remember just sitting there, and I would record it on WGN, VHS. You remember, remember that, dude? WGN. Yeah, which, by the way, also tons of Saved by the Bell on WGN, yes. which was Watched fantastic. I know you did. Yes, <laughs> I know. Side Jesse note, Spano. if you guys look up Zach Morris's trash, you'll all laugh a lot. It's actually really funny. Okay, that's total, completely side note. That was Anyways, squirrel. It was total squirrel. That's what I do. WGN, go. Yeah. So, I mean, I watched a lot of WGN, but I would pop a a VHS tape in to watch baseball at nine years old. I was just like, I got to watch because my uncle was playing, you know. And And did your grandpa play? And so, and my grandfather played, and he played for the Pirates, and he won the Cy Young Award. And so, I grew up thinking baseball is like the most important thing to everybody. So, I would walk around thinking like, I'm a baseball guy, you know, like. (laughs) like, I'm Robbie Law. Yeah, like (laughs) I'm I'm Kevin Tenney's friend Robbie Law, you know. (laughs) So, so, I mean, I really did. I just, baseball was just the world, you know. And so, I mean, I I don't. You played in high school. Did you play past high school? I didn't. Uh, well, I did, but I didn't. I mean, I played. In fact, I had a really good conversation with a kid yesterday. Um, uh, he hurt his shoulder. It's his senior year of high school, and I was just, like, sitting there talking to him. And, you know, I, I know he's lost his senior year, you know. Oh, and, like and you I'm feel his like, pain. Oh, my gosh. I remember just talking to him, and I was sitting there talking to him. I was like, Zach, I'm so sorry, dude. And But if you don't mind, I would love to share one experience of mine. And I said, you know, when I played in high school, I felt so much pressure. I always felt like my... I needed to be really, really good at baseball, but I was never really very good. Like, you say, did you play baseball? I was like, I was there. I was on the team. I was the guy crying in the corner, right? That was me. But, you know, but uh, but after we started playing, um, I told Zach this. I said, when I was an adult, we played in adult leagues, and there was no pressure, and it was so fun. Like, I really, really enjoyed it at that point. And so, yeah, I played a lot after high school. And that was really the best time that I enjoyed the baseball field, you know, because I didn't feel like there was anything hanging over me that like required no me to be, yeah, no expectation. It was just like, let's go have fun, you know? So I told him that and I just, you know, helped him 
hopefully see that that he's not it's not the end you know there's still other things if he wants to still do that you know further proof that Robbie Law magnifies people (laughs) (laughs) yeah dude he's a good kid though organically do it man you don't even know you do it (laughs) so in my experience people who are magnifiers of others have a story in which they have found themselves and they struggle uh, early on and through that struggle are able to find meaning. So what's your story, man? What brings wait, you meaning? Wait, wait. First, we got we got to know more about him. No, I want to go deep. Into yeah. <laughs> Matt always likes <laughs> because, because, okay, Well, Matt. So, so like, here's the thing. Meaning for you is what? What is meaning like? I I want it to matter. I want to. I want what I say to go further than just my words to others. I do. I don't want them to just like just. I don't. I want them to have meaning. I want the words that I say to penetrate into people and help them, not me, because I think maybe for for a time maybe I didn't feel. Like, that's what I did. Um, I don't know. Altruism. I don't know that. You use big words every time I'm with you. You're like... Okay, altruism, I've learned. Oh, good. Let's hear this, Bethany. It's it's like... B10. Okay, this is my interpretation of altruism. But it's where... It's because I read Dalai Lama. That's how I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's... it's, You're going to have to correct me. But it's where, like, you literally... You genuinely want to help the world... With nothing in return. It is just to help people. Because you have so much like love and compassion in you that you just want to get it out there. Gosh, man. I, I really hope, I wish and hope that that's the way that I, I am. That that's, I'm an altruist. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I think, I, I try not to have motive with, with what I do. I mean, when I was talking to Zach, I, I definitely remember just thinking, gosh, I want him to, I don't want him to take this moment and let it be painful for longer than it needs to be. That's all. I just remember thinking that. So I, I don't think I had a motive when I was talking to him. Okay. So you met Annie in high school. Yes. So right. Cool, dude. <laughs> yeah, you Did seen, you guys date in high school? Yeah. So have you ever seen Hotel Transylvania where he talks about Zing? Like no. when your eyes see it, there's this like little cartoon and like there's two people that see each other and when they do their eyes zing, like they knew I had that with my wife. Is that crazy? Oh, I love I did. Yeah, that. I saw her. So I turned romantic. her. So she comes in in this kind of, I, I was in Miss Connie's foods class. So I went from Orem to Timpanogos. Timpanogos was built my okay, junior year. I remember that. I rem- yeah, so... And you were friends with friends of mine at Timpanogos. I totally remember this. Yeah, so... Because there were a lot of Mountain View people there. Mm-hmm. So I remember I got into this class, and I had to kind of work my way into the class because it was like two weeks after the class started. And so I wanted to switch. And I go in, and I, I talk to this this teacher, Miss Connie, who was just like an amazing teacher, mm-hmm. by the way. She's so cool. And um, I sit down next to my buddy Dan, and this girl walks in with a green tank top and these shorts i remember the shorts and everything I love she had a hole right here in her this. pants and i could see her tan leg and i was just like oh my gosh she's so hot she had the nicest legs and so she still does she still does <laughs> and uh so he i saw her mortified right now 
Annie is. <laughs> she totally is. No, oh, she she so digs this. She she knows she's a very beautiful woman. So I see her and I turn to my buddy Dan and I go, I'm taking that girl to prom. That's like the senior year version of like I'm in love already, you know, like I'm, I'm taking awesome. her to prom, which I totally did. You know, I, I totally did. And, you know, we, we were together pretty much. We've been together ever since, you know. So that's how I met my wife. When did you guys get married? Um, so we got married when we were, let's see, 22, I think. So 22. Yeah, and so now you've like got how many kids? Uh, we have three boys. Uh, they're 7, 10, and 13. So all boys. And that's like... For me, like the baseball thing, I thought, I remember growing up going, I'm going to just, my kids are going to be the best baseball players and just thinking I would care. Oh, I try that too. You want to know? I'm, I'm 0 for 2 so far. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on. What are you trying to get your kids to do that you're 0 for 2 on? So I grew up playing softball since I was a baby and love it and obsessed and my dad was obsessed. And anyways, so I always thought my, my kids will play softball or baseball. And none of them do. Why? So I actually owe for four because my girls don't play either. <laughs> we keep hoping. We named Ripkin Ripkin. So we're like, he's, he's going to play baseball. That's he's, the only way. He's young though, man. He's got the most <laughs> legit hair ever. Your kids are so awesome. Anyways, I love them. I just love your, yeah, your boys are adorable. So I, do they play baseball right now? So, I mean, that's what I thought. I thought I would be the parent that would care. You know, because, I mean, I grew up in a house. My dad was the best ever, like, greatest human being, like, the most kind. He coached every team that I ever had and my brother's team and my other brother and my sister. And when my sister moved to Vegas um, her for her senior year to go play softball down there, my dad still lived here. He flew down and never missed a game. He flew to every game. That's, really That's cool. my dad. So, I, I mean, I definitely have that desire to be that. My kids just don't care. And I thought I would care, but I don't. I just am more like, you know, they want to do other things, you know, then I'll support that too. I love that. So, I totally but agree. I, man, I wish, I do wish they would play baseball. I love <laughs> baseball, but I do have one. My son Parker's 10 and he's starting to really get into it. And that's about the age that I really fell in love with baseball. So yeah, I didn't know our podcast was about baseball, Matt. I know. It's my fault. I'm like, yes, let's play baseball. <laughs> it's funny. It's an important part of who you are because I think that competitive Mm-hmm. Peace has groomed you to become the person you are. Because even in your career, competition is a big part of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. What do you do for work now? Um, gosh, what do I do? Like we're. I was. This is a tough question. I know because I kind of like from my pin house. down exactly what you do. Maybe even just kind of like go back to starting from you. You married Annie, mm-hmm. and then where did it go from there? Yeah. So I'm. Um, when we got married, I was already um, traveling for work. I got into sales, and then um, my buddy, I, I really was obsessed with learning how to communicate with people, you know, because I was really not, I wasn't an introvert, I would say. If people knew me growing up, they would say he's not an introvert, but I didn't know how to be socially. I didn't really get it. Um, maybe, maybe I'm being harsh on myself, but I, I definitely was very, like, I don't know, I was kind of out there. And like, socially awkward a, a little bit because I was I was I wanted I thought I was really cool but I really wasn't you know and so I was always the the tag along guy like you talk about John <laughs> John I was John's tag along guy I still am man I still am I mean the guy's like this the most amazing guy and I'm just his tag along buddy I'm like yeah but he's pal. not like an extrovert either 
I know he's not at all. Yeah. No, but you know, but John and I, we have we've had a great relationship for a really long time. But you know, I'm, I, I, I guess I, I've always considered myself to be very social, but I've never felt capable in that situation. I always felt less. Like I never was good with girls. I was never good with any of that stuff. You know, I was just like I was always just an awkward guy that was also there. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And so I wanted to get better at that. I wanted, I loved the idea that I could be like the centerpiece front of the room. So I, my friend Andy, who's like, he's my mentor. He's the most pers- amazing speaker coach on the planet. He knows more about the way the brain works and how people interpret words and stuff. And so I learned from him for a, for a while. I really obsessed over learning from him when I traveled with him. And his wife went into labor, and he's like, I needed someone to cover for me and come speak. And I was like, dude, I'm in. It was 2 in the morning. So what? at 6 in the morning, I get on an airplane, and I by That's 9 crazy. o'clock, I'm speaking in front of a group for the first time. And it, it first time is the main guy. You know? How old are you? I was 25 at that wow. time. So, That's yeah. I know, baby. but I'm 25. Right. But look at, I mean, I was like, I that was... I looked like I was 12, okay? And I was <laughs> talking to people about mutual funds and, like, old people, but I had money already and stuff, and I was, like, this kid, you know? But I really, like, I, I didn't do bad. And so the next day, I remember I was driving home from the... It was in Sacramento. I was driving home from the airport, and my buddy Ryan, who is my boss, and I'd, I'd worked myself up in the company to a good management position, but I wanted to speak. I wanted that... that uh, ability to get in front of a whole group because it's like the number one fear everyone has you know but I was like yep. I was terrified the first time I I got up to 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 give an intro I told people to turn off or to um be careful not to smoke their cell phones or something because I was saying no smoking and turn your cell phones off and I mixed <laughs> them and stuff I was so felt so stupid so then I got this phone call on the way home from the airport and it's Ryan he's like dude go you know go out there go go do it, dude. Let's get you a team. So the next week I was in Tampa Bay and I had a team for 12 years and I got a, I, so I got into public speaking and you know, that, I mean, I've never really thought about that as part of my journey, you know, but I got, I got, a, I mean, I got attention really fast in, in that, in that specific thing, you know, and You're so I was. speaking in front of how many people? It was small at first. I mean, it was like a hundred people or yeah, 50 people. Yeah, but it grew people. to what? Um, I mean, the biggest group I ever spoke to is probably, 5,000, but I mean, it wasn't, they weren't there to see me. I just happened to be in there. But 5,000 people, man, that's, that's um, immense. Yeah. It's, it's, but you know, it's easier to speak in that than it is to speak to a group of five, you know, for you. I was going to say not for Matt. That's that's like his specialty is like the small groups. Yeah. yeah, Okay. So, so you said you, for 12 years, you have this team, Mm -hmm. you're married through this Mm -hmm. whole thing and you're traveling. I'm traveling. How much are you traveling? I was traveling like every week. I was traveling like Monday to Saturday. Like, well, I mean, it started, and it's interesting. Like, you justify stuff along the way. Like, yeah. I'm, I never had the intention of being a guy that would be away from my family like that. You know, I was like, no, because I, I, my dad, you know, I want to be my dad. My dad's the most amazing guy I've ever known. And he's home all the time. He's home. He's, he's coaching. He's like full dad, working from home, residual income, like the smartest. My dad's incredible. Okay. Just let you know how cool he is. He's like retired in Panama. Like he's got a place. I know. I'm still waiting like, to go to his he's house. Super cool. I know. You need to come. You need to come. It's perfect. It'll be we a beautiful right now, union. Let's get out our calendars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So was that hard on your marriage? It was really hard. It was really hard. Because I I've never done this, but I've I've never lived that life yet. The traveling, 
but I know a lot of people that do it and I know it's rough. Like, tell me what's that like for you? What's that like for Annie when you're not seeing each other all week long and it's maybe a phone call a day? Is that how you communicate? Yeah. I mean, it was, and we, it wasn't like today too, because this was 2002, five, um, 2002 when I started traveling, 2005 when I started speaking. So 2005. And so, I mean, the Facebook wasn't really a thing as much, you know, and so there wasn't a lot of communication there. So not knowing what's going on or whatever, there wasn't a lot of like, there wasn't video stuff, you know, so it was a phone call and it was a phone call at night. And I mean, the thing it did mostly for me is it just kind of made me isolate. I'd kind of grown up in the social construct that outside of my house, there was a lot of danger and a lot of things that I, you know, need to be careful of and keep yourself in good situations. So I did, I did try to do that. So as I, as I was, as I did that, um, you know, I, I ended up doing, I isolated a lot, you know, I, but I had a good crew with me, you know, like I said, like I always, no, no matter where I was, I always hired my own guys. I always called my buddies and said, Hey, come be my crew. And so like, I mean, I've probably hired, like, in my career, at least 60, 70 of my friends to come and work with me or to work around me because I, I tried to surround myself with good people as much as I could, just knowing that I was going to be as, you know, I kind of learned early on that I needed to be around good influences or it was going to be easy for me to not make Well, and it's probably choices. more enjoyable. You're gone from your wife and family all the time, so it's like, if you have to be gone, might as well be with your buddies. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a strategy people, human beings use in general to kind of understand who they are on a deeper level is we start to look at other people to other understand ourselves. And I think as you started to do that and surround yourself with people who you wanted to be like, you began to see who you were. True, not true. No, I mean, I think it's true. I also just, I feel like I started to discover who I wanted to be. Like, I mean, watching these guys, like, oh, I want to be that guy. Yeah, because it was the who I were part. I was kind of very not, like, proud of, like, that. That's that's what we do. But that's what we do as human beings. We, We see people who we want to be like, and we imitate, emulate, you know, impersonate those people in order to find out who we are. And then along the way, things happen and we get to figure out us. I feel like that's exactly how it happened for me. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> I, I know you're a therapist or something, dude. I know. He's good at this. Yeah, yeah no. He's that's... great at telling us exactly what's going through your head. You're like, yes, that's exactly right. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. I mean, I, I think, gosh, my my best asset in life has always been learning from somebody and being coachable probably just like looking at like I just think about I mean let's talk about Kevin like (laughs) Kevin's been like my everyone's gonna be like this is a podcast about Kevin. Yes, <laughs> yes, it is. Well, I mean, this I, is his new favorite episode. Yeah. Well, Kevin introduced me to Matt, so I have that gratitude, of course, for that because Matt knew that. I mean, Kevin knew that this would be something that would make sense, you know, because Matt's been. I mean, you have been, dude, super helpful. It's not like it's so funny. You think I figured stuff out, dude? Like I call, I'm calling you. I'm talking to you. I'm Marco Polo and you. I'm on your podcast, dude. <laughs> right? Like, okay, but that goes with your being coachable. Okay. So I tell my kids, by the way, it's funny because I tell my kids anytime. So Brinley just had tryouts recently. Kale had tryouts recently for different teams. And I'm like, look, it's so much more. It's about working hard and being coachable. There's going to be people that are naturally talented in life, right? That just kind of coast through life. 
and that goes for life, sports, whatever. But the ones that are coachable, the ones that will like sit and listen and take advice from people, those are the good ones. Like I swear, those are the like those are the kids so I always right. wanted to coach because it's like he may suck, but he's listening to me. Yeah, so this was it's a great transition because knowledge guess, bomb from B10. Yeah, <laughs> that was no, amazing. That's a great transition. <laughs> she didn't go to school to learn that. She just knows. That's awesome. <laughs> well, it's a great transition because I can say I know exactly what you're talking about because uh-huh. I, I was speaking for. I was still. Sp- I'm still a speaker. I, I, I'll never lose that. I mean, there's public speaking opportunities all the time. I consider this one right now. You know. Um, Whenever you have an audience and people are are willing to listen to you, you know, that's an important moment. Well, I got to the point where I, I, you know, you talk about the travel. I mean, I was 12 years and, or, let's see. Yeah, sorry, I like to be honest with my stuff. So, like, I would say 12 years, yeah. (laughs) I want to get the timeline right, you know. But, I mean, it was really, it's July of 2016. I couldn't do it anymore, man. I just, like, I'm, I'm, what what, what have I been, because I was on, I had a bit on stage where, you know, when you're a public speaker, your audience is hearing you for the first time, but you're not saying it for the first time. And that's not bad. But it's definitely, you get your bit, and then if you say it enough times, this is like, words matter. Like, when you say it, you believe it, right? I had this bit about how much I wanted to be like my dad and how I wanted to coach my kids' games and... And be there the way he was. And I would stand on stage and say it every single day. And I believed it 100%, but I never really did it until I did it. Where I finally said, okay, I, I got to end this. I got to move forward and do something new that allows me to do what I've been setting out to do for so long. And since I've been home, every single game, practice, choir, ballroom, I teach my son's art class. I'll take every single opportunity that I get to be with my kids. And it doesn't make it easier, but it makes it have meaning. You know, it gives it meaning. That's exactly what I was going to say. Exactly. Matt, it's like... Those 12 years, man, they have meaning now because you're with your kids and you get to do the dad thing the way that you saw your dad do it. And that has provided you with purpose, meaning, and ultimately created fulfillment for you in your relationship with your kids, which is what people are searching for. Yeah. Gosh, it really has. Like, I can say that with complete honesty. Okay, so you're you're in a good place now. At what point were you not in a good place? Did you start to feel yourself struggling with life and start turning to other things? Um, whenever I felt like I would, thank you for the question because I've not thought through why I started. Real quick. I just want to know that I didn't ask this question. I know it's me. Bethany did. (laughs) What? I'm totally rubbing off on her. (laughs) I know I'm pulling away from the moment right now, but this is, that was a really good question. Oh, so you're taking credit for it? I'm not. (laughs) Matt's usually the one that's like. Dives in and I'm like, that's, really, that's a really okay. good. That question. is a good question, Kay. That's it's right. a good question, Kay. So the first knee injury that I ever had, um, I heard it in a basketball game um, or in a baseball game first, and um, I apologize. So the very first time I heard, it, I was wakeboarding at Lake Powell, and I remember ter- it's kind of landing weird on my wakeboard, and 
I thought, oh man, that's not right. Wakeboarding, I, was, I just like loved it. Like it was my thing. Like I was pretty yeah. good at it and everything. <laughs> I was good. It was like my thing where I could get that recognition that I really obviously craved, you know, that I, I'm learning on this podcast that I love that. <laughs> so um, I go home and then I have a baseball game. And I remember when I was, when I injured my knee, I, the ball had gone out to right field, like somebody had overthrown it and I ran out as quick as I could and the play was over. I could have stopped right then, but I was trying so hard to make sure that the guy didn't get an extra base in a freaking adult baseball league. <laughs> and I go and I go pivot to get the ball and I turn to throw and my knee just gives and I tore my ACL and I remember sitting over there on the side and there's this guy, if people go to Provo High at Tim Park um, there's this guy there who's a little bit, um, he's, he's the fan that's always at the baseball park and everybody knows who he is and he's happy, but he's maybe not all there with us. Okay. Everybody knew this guy and I don't remember his name, but he was so nice and he came over and he said something that is so profound coming from this guy. He goes, things are going to change. And I was like. What does that mean? Because he was sitting there Is watching that a little me. Creepy. Yeah, no? but it was really powerful. Now that I look back on it, because I'm going, dude. Because we talked, and he was being so nice. And it was because I was really bummed out. Because my knee went out, and here's what it was, Bethany. It was like, I can't do what I'm good at. I can't do what I'm good at, which is. I was I considered my life self concept as I'm good at baseball. I'm good at sports. I'm athletic. I'm, which I never really was, but I thought that I was. And so when I lost that in that moment, it was like, oh, crap. And I remember going to the doctor and, and, and getting um, Percocets and everything, and um, there was no problem at all. And I was fine. And then I got another knee injury a year later. Okay, so there's no problem, but you're taking no. Percocets. Percocet at this point, yeah. To not hurt? Lortabs, yeah, because I went through a knee surgery and stuff, just normal, okay? Okay, so n- normal knee surgery, and you got painkillers to just get through the day, or just for the hard times? So no, I got it because the doctor just gives it to you because it's the end of a surgery. So I didn't really ask for it, he knew. you get to a surgery, and you get done, and you don't ask, and the doctor just says, hey, guess what, you're going to be in pain, but... Don't be in pain. Here, take all these medications. And he gives you three refills or four or seven or who knows. What year is this? Well, this was uh, 2005. 2005. So this is even before the opioid crisis. I know a little bit about this, my friends. Um, 2005, this is peak opioid prescription epidemic. So he gave you a shit ton of opioids. Yeah. Um, so I've never really thought of it that way. I just kind of, I just, I, I remember being laying there on the bed when I woke up and just going, this is like, there's no pain right now because I have this, they put a thing in your, and then the doctor came over and he's like, do you want, do you want something for the pain when you get home? And I was like, is it going to hurt? And he just goes, it's mo- yeah, it's going to hurt. And I go, yeah, man, whatever. And so he prescribed me Percocet 10, 325s. I remember that. So we're going to do a quick history lesson just for the listeners. So the opioid crisis began <clears throat> in the 90s. And the reason why it began is because the American <clears throat> Medical Association came out and said, we're not doing a good enough job taking care of people's pain. And so there was this blanket statement given that we need to be better about monitoring pain. So if you notice now, you go to a hospital, what do they ask you? 
write your scale on a pain of zero to 10. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They do it all the time. They do it all the time. And so all of these pharmaceutical companies really jumped on the bandwagon. One in particular <coughs> that I want everybody listening to remember this name, Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma, they're the makers of OxyContin. OxyContin is the drug that spiked the opioid crisis. Now you're talking about Pergacex, which is Pergacets, which is oxycodone, which is different than oxycontin. However, it's a derivative of the same drug. In the 90s, oxycontin became it, it, it was the opioid epidemic that we see today, and the prescription rates jumped from one to 200 to 300 to 400 to 502, somewhere near a thousand percent at one point, where they're just dumping opioids in people's laps. And Purdue Pharma and other pharmaceutical companies deliberately misled doctors by saying things like, we don't believe that there is the potential for addiction that there is like with other substances. And so they dump in your lap a bunch of Percocets and they give you three or four or six refills in 2005. Because we don't do that anymore now, but it's kind of too late, right? But 2005... They dump a bunch of Percocets in your lap because that's what the doctor has been told to do by these, by the American Medical Association that has their research funded by these pharmaceutical companies. It's very, very convoluted and very, very screwed up. And we are in the middle of literally, friends, the greatest health crisis ever. More people die every single day from opioid addiction if they're under 50 than literally any other Dude, I didn't know any of this. 72,000. 72,000 people died last year from opioid overdoses. Seven, or drug overdoses, excuse me. Not opioids, but drugs in general. 72,000. You combine that with the number of suicides, it's the greatest loss of life. Greater than cancer, greater than heart failure, greater than cardiac, anything. It is the largest epidemic on the face of the planet. And... This is because as a culture, we have decided that we don't deal with pain anymore. We avoid it and we numb from it. And so anyways, back to your story. Doctor says, hey, you're going to be in pain. You don't need to be in pain. Here's a bunch of medications. Well, first of all, I did not know any of that. And it makes me very upset. Like, I don't really know how to handle my emotion at this point because I just, I like... It's probably make, anger. I, You're probably feeling what I feel. I'm, I'm a little bit angry just because anger. I think about what I went through and I go, did that? Did I? I didn't really know that that was coming, and I maybe I didn't. Yeah, so that's frustrating. But yeah, so he gave them to me. Um, it wasn't the first time I'd used them. Um, the first time I used opioids was in high school. Um, I remember in high school not feeling like it was as bad because I was like, I didn't, I didn't drink. I was going to say, all the way through high you school. You didn't drink? I you didn't. didn't do real drugs? No, dude. My gateway drug was Robitussin. Robitussin. Man. That was totally our high school <laughs> so days. That's what everybody. No. I just said that. No, that's the truth. <laughs> you know how many people I know? Oh, I mean, it wasn't really oh my, my thing. Gosh. But I knew a lot of people. Robo. Robo. Everyone would yeah. Robo. Yeah. No, Robo, dude. A bunch so of I, Robo. Drink. Yeah. Scissor up. Holy balls. It's still a huge thing in the rap community. Terrence, if you're listening to this, your children know all about this. And it's a massive, massive problem. Yeah, if you I know. Want to know more about it? Hit me up on Facebook. I'm dead serious. Okay, continue, Robbie. Yeah, I did not. I mean, because that, I just, I don't know what to talk about right now. Because <laughs> the the reason Robitussin and and 
and oxycodone, you know, I mean, uh, pills was because it didn't feel like it was against my my religious standards in my mind. You know, I mean, that was my own convoluted way of thinking that this is just coming from a doctor, but there was thinking that came, you know, from like, I mean, it's just right here. It's just like on my counter. It's not like an alcohol. It's not a smoke thing. It's not any of the things, you know. Yeah. Bobby, so, this it's is... not listed. Yeah, it, this, this is... So your thinking is the microcosm or the small version of the reason why we are somewhere in the top 10... 2015, we're number nine in opioid deaths in the United States here in Utah. In Utah. Yeah, because, I know a lot of Because them. many members of the Mormon church, right, were somewhere, in, depending on what part, right, 60% in Salt Lake. Down here, it's closer to 70 or 80. They've never tried, just like you, right? I've never drank. I've never done anything. All of a sudden, I get these opioids, and it's like, holy shit, what is this? And it hits, boom, hard. And good and fast, and I don't know how to deal with it. And that. nobody, it's not on a list. So coming from a religious background, yeah, there's there's a the list, wisdom, right? right? There's a list of no, 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 no. Well, no, there's no Percocet on that list. There's no yeah. Robitussin on that list. And there's and a script s- from a doctor, so it's okay, right? Well, yeah, and so, yeah, man, I I, I really... And I feel like we're like, we're like, I love you guys. No, I love you guys. I'm trying to protect everything about my life right now because <laughs> I, I, I know what it, I, when I, I remember walking into my, to an interview and just being asked, do you keep the word of wisdom? And I said, yes, with total clarity in my mind at that time, for anyone that doesn't know what that means it just I felt like I was fine and then I walked out and I just remember feeling like shit and I remember if I would have I just remember thinking man if I would have said something that time maybe somebody could help me to to maybe not get to the next step you know but like there's there was this shameful feeling that I took but at the same time I still was able to justify it because it wasn't on the list, mm-hmm. you know. So that's my own mental thinking. It has nothing to do with anything. And well, I don't. I'm not going to put a frame around it. But I just I felt like that in that moment. I didn't feel. I, I felt shame in a time when I could have had help, maybe. Um, and then from there, it went to per. It went to just the pills out of that I could find out of my mom's play out of my mom's. Thing. Was it still because of pain? Or was um, no, it no, no, no. So this was when I was in high school. Sorry. Okay. So in high school, this was just like, let's go hang out with our friends, you yeah. know? So it was grab mom's pills or whatever. My friend, uh, I don't know say his name, but <laughs> <laughs> my friend, you know, his mom had some or whatever. And so that was my first introduction, you know? But once again, I was 17 at the time and I was still, you know, when they were asking that question, I was saying, no, I'm fine because I wasn't, I wasn't smoking. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't doing any of those things at at that time, you know, and so that kind of is where I got started. So to get back to 2005, I get injured, and um, so I start taking Percocet, and I remember the first uh, couple months, I would just, I'd take them every day, I would just take them, you know, and it was just part of my routine, yeah, you know, it was like habit. I was taking, yeah, it was a habitual thing, and then about, and then I would, went back, how was the pain, it was, you know, it's not bad, I still, I still do feel it, you know, but I definitely remember feeling like I liked 
the feeling. I definitely remember that. And so there was a time where my doctor finally said, no, I can't prescribe you anymore. And this was probably like 90 days in, maybe, after my surgery. And I don't know if it was so 90. So you'd had it regularly for probably 90 days? I, I, I think maybe 90 days. I would think, and I was at like maybe. And now all of a sudden you're like supposed to not take it. Yeah, not take it. And so I remember going through withdrawals, but I didn't know what they were. Yeah. I was laying in bed one time, and I felt like my insights wanted to be on my outsides. And I'm just laying there. Just It feels like your body wants to crawl out of you. And I'm just sitting there, and you're trying to arch your back to get it. And I just was like what is this, you know? And then I remember I got out of my bed. I went downstairs because I was bunging Annie, my wife, and I went downstairs and slept on the couch, and the whole night was just miserable. Like, what the heck is this, dude? And I just, a couple days of it, and then I was gone, and then I didn't think about it, you know? I didn't know what what was going on, and then... you didn't even realize what you went through. No, I didn't even know what it was, and I didn't, wasn't taking any pain pills, but I wasn't feeling much pain at the time. And then um, I got re-injured, and I hurt my other knee. And, um, well, same knee actually the first time. So then I tear my ACL again and I'm just like, oh my gosh, like again. So same routine, same process, same process, except this time it wasn't enough. And so I started taking more. So then I found online, I could just order door tabs right offline. So I just what? bought, yeah, I was buying, they, I was buying a hundred pills offline, sending them cause I was traveling. So I'd send them to my hotel. They would ship them to my hotel you know, and so then I would just So your family didn't have to know. No, because, no, I mean, because now I'm going, okay, I'm an adult. I know that I shouldn't be ordering a medication offline. Okay. I know I'm an adult, but I don't know the problem that's coming. I don't, because I didn't, Percocet and Lortab is very different than what you were talking about. And so I do that for a little while. And at the time, I mean, I'm, I'm functioning like you think I'm high functioning. I, I think I take that as such a high compliment because I look <laughs> with you with deep respect. But man, I got a lot of problems. Everybody's got problems, you know. I mean, I I, I find that I've got I've I've I feel like on top of certain things, you know, like my addiction. I feel like I'm on top of it, you know. But at that time, I was doing really well, man. I mean, I was making money. I was like a, able to. So function. you're like professionally doing great, even though you are addicted to these pills. Yeah. So now the addiction started. This is like 2006. The addiction's now started. Like now I'm like, okay, I'm trying to, I'm seeking is what, I remember a doctor saying that one time. He said, there's seekers that come in. And I remember thinking, okay, how do I not look like a seeker? Yeah. I remember thinking that. How do I not look like a seeker? That's a dark moment, huh? Yeah, dude. I was, I I remember just, I remember that because it was a conscious thought, Mm -hmm. you know, it, and and um, so I go to, uh, I, I did end up going to like University of Utah, some like healthcare facility or whatever. And I went in there and I, I told the it's brand new guy, I'd never even like met with him before. And I go and I go, I've been having headaches. And he goes, well, what have you tried? And I go, well, the only thing that's ever worked for me is, is Lortabs and stuff. And so he prescribed me Lortabs. First visit right into the guy, boom, I got yeah. Lortabs, you know? And so I was like, oh, it's not too hard, you know? Um, at one point though, um, I, 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 I'm apparently I get a lot of knee injuries. Okay. So seriously, that sounds awful. I know, but with every knee injury came new, like lessons, (laughs) lessons, (laughs) drugs too, (laughs) but lessons, lessons from drugs, lessons from the drugs, you know? And so the first time I rehabbed, I didn't get my bend back on my knee. Um, and so what that means is you got to go through this physical therapy process that's painful. So I would just pop a bunch of pills before I would go. I would get it back because I was, the doctor told me on my last knee injury 
This was um, 2008. He he said, Robbie, this is this is you're, you're this is it for you. He said, um, you're never gonna. You need to set aside running and jumping, and athleticism and mobility and moving side to side, and you're gonna need a knee replacement at 35. Um, uh, is what he said. If you don't listen to me, you'll need a new replacement at 35. Because when I tore my knee the last time, it was wakeboarding and it's stupid stuff. But anyway, I mean, I shattered my femoral condyle. And so I, I have about 10% of my meniscus left on my left knee and then on the outside and 20% on the inside. And I just, it's it's not really right in there, you know? And he he gave me a death sentence, you know? And I I'm, you talk about competitiveness, bro. When someone says, you can't do this, I looked at him and I just, in my head, said, fuck you, dude. <laughs> and I was sorry. No, I, I was going to say... You said one F word. Yeah, and, and I did. You're fine. But I remember thinking, I'm, you, you do don't this. know me. And so then it was like, go into the thing and take as many pills as you have to to get your bend back, to do all the things, because, you know, because you got to, you know. And so I did, but... Now I, I competitively made myself dive deep, deep into the addiction at that point because I was... Well, because... So it. you... I mean, you're talking addiction to these pills, but really you're addicted <clears throat> to that adrenaline of the athleticism, the competitiveness. You're already addicted to this, right? And so then your body's given out. Your body's like, uh-uh, we're done, we're done, we're done. The only thing that's keeping you in are these pills. Well, and... Going back, way back, your identity is wrapped up in your competitiveness. You're an athlete. That's what you were born as. You came out and you're like, I'm an athlete. I'm a baseball guy. And Doc looks at you and says, guess what, sucker? You can't jump. You can't run. You can't move laterally. And you have this moment of crisis where you look at him and you go, no, screw you. I'm going to prove to you that I am who I think I am. And the way that you stay who you think you are is you numb the pain. Yeah. No, I mean, I would just release from... I remember... Oh, man, I just... I would just release from life as much as I could, you know. I remember the first time my friend introduced me to Oxycontin. I was out on the road, and... He, I remember we went to like a teppanyaki restaurant and he turns to me and he goes, dude, I got something in the room you got to see. And so I go in there and I knock on his door and he comes in. He's got like, I didn't, he's got it there. And he said, this is Oxy. And it was just such a small amount that you had to take. And I was like, that's it? And I remember just, I remember the feeling and I just was like, I remember literally thinking you're in deep trouble now. I remember really? thinking that. Oh, yeah. I totally remember it because I know me. Mm-hmm. I know me. And when I choose to do something, I give it a hundred, five million percent. You I know? have heard that story a hundred times, two hundred times. I have no idea. But that that is so how it is. You know when you're in over your head and you just can't stop. Yeah. There's nothing that will keep you from it because it's it's just you've crossed that threshold into this other place where it's just like I don't even know what to do anymore. I'm lost. I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep doing this because this yes. is what I know. This is what I know now. 
Yeah, and you that's when you get really, really creative with how you justify your life at that point, man. I How much so at this point in life did you have kids at that point? So this was like right around um my son Brady was born in two thousand and five. So this was like he was he was young. Little but you know, it's it's interesting because when I when I look in a mirror and see my own face now, I can see whether or not my eyes are good. When I was using, I could look in my eyes and know I was yeah. using. And I've seen those eyes, and nobody's eyes can can see. I, I can see through anybody that's on opiates. I can see right inside their eyes. I know exactly. You know what, what it looks through. like. Yeah. What? When you what do you see like describe that when you see somebody what do you feel see um, just their pupils of course like there's a yeah, dilation like the of pupils there it. It, you know have you ever seen like a painting where the shadows are off like yeah. the the sun is over here but the shadows like going this way and you look at it and it goes, just looks different because the shadows going the wrong direction and the painter didn't maybe think about putting the put the shadow in the right way that's the way people's eyes look to me that's really adept. Oh, well, I just thought of that. I like that. Okay, so... <laughs> That's kind of the way it looks. At this point in life, you're you're successful business-wise, yeah. right? Family, you've got little kids, so you're just kind of starting that. What kind of money did you drop? Because I... This kind of stuff's expensive, right? Like, yeah. if you're... You're not just getting them from a doctor. You're not just going to a normal pharmacy now. You're seeking them. Yeah. And you're getting them from... That starts to get expensive, doesn't it? Oh, my gosh. I had two stories. This is so embarrassing to tell, and I won't say any, any people involved, but I was in New York City one time, and I was desperate. I was so desperate because what happens when you start seeking is, like, you're looking for it, and you're planning the rest, how much time you have with it, and you're thinking of the next time you need to get it because I would buy in bulk. I would try and stock up. So you know, like, okay, if I get this much, it's going to last me for this many weeks, oh, I and then i got to make sure I have the next mm-hmm. Okay. I knew how much, and I would wean, because what I would do is I would use, and then I'd wean myself down, So because I, I figured out the withdrawal thing. So if I knew I couldn't get pills for a while, because it's not like I, it's, you can't just walk down and get them sometimes. For me, I was trying to keep it quiet. I didn't want my wife to know. I didn't want anybody else to know. I was trying to hide something. I was really becoming very deceptive at that point in my life. I was hiding it, because I was embarrassed, man. Like you said, I was like doing well and my life was doing good and my kids like everything was good I mean I felt like I was doing the right things I just was wrapped up inside this thing but I'm in New York and I'm desperate dude I'm walking down Manhattan and this guy goes hey man you and I'm just like yeah let's talk you know I'm terrified so I go um into like a alley with him or whatever and we're talking and um, I've kind of arranged what's going to happen, but I um, had a friend with me at the time, and he ends up going, um, anyway, to get money or whatever, comes back, and the guy talking to me, this is going to sound like such a conspiracy, I'm just going to cut it short, but anyway, the guy's talking to me, and as he's talking to me, we give him money, and he takes it, and then the cops pull up outside this restaurant, and the guy just kind of disappears or whatever when this happens. And then the cop follows us. My phone gets scrambled. 
and the cop follows us for like three blocks, and then I stop just because I'm like, is this really happening? And the cop just stares us, stares us down. Like him and this guy were in on it. Like this cop and this dude. So the guy was supposed to get us oxy, but he ended up with 700 bucks of mine. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And like, the paranoia The from paranoia. Hell. I was like, okay, never again. Oh. Never again. So from then on, I found a more consistent route, you know, because I was like, this was the same guy that introduced it to me. And so all of that, all of that happened in a really like short period of time. And I was like, shit, like what so have I gotten myself into you're here? You're talking $700 just in one little thing. Yeah. So how much over the course of a year would you spend on this? Well, I was like, by the very end, um, I was probably at about five grand a month because. So that that's like what some people just make to live. That's see, 60 and this grand is in a this year. is what I tell people, and this sounds so terrible to say, but I was very fortunate financially that I didn't get into heroin. Yeah. Because if I couldn't afford it, I would have, man, for sure. But I had enough coming in that Annie didn't know. And so I could spend five grand a month and she wouldn't even realize, you know. And that's the privilege that you had to be able to afford that. Because, I mean, one dose hit whatever of Oxy, how much did that cost? At your 80, 80 bucks would be the, like, if you'd get an 80 pill, it's 80 bucks. But I, it just depends on how much you would buy. So like right. I said, I would try and figure it out. So I would go and I was putting money together in certain ways and, yeah. Yeah, and heroin's 20, a fourth the cost. Yeah. And it's risky and dirty and you don't know what you're getting, but it's a fourth the cost. And so, I mean, do the math on that. You're spending six grand a month. Heroin users are still spending 1500 bucks a month. Yeah. Somewhere and, around that neighborhood to try and get their fix and they live on the streets or they live in an apartment like this crisis you do the math on this it's billions of dollars a year going into drug dealers and in drug dealers pockets and then times that by four billions of dollars a year going into the pharmaceutical companies pockets man dude it's so frustrating it's out of control it's out so, because I remember just being in the grip, and I, I, I think you guys know me well enough to know it. Just there's, I, I remember there's one moment, and I feel so, f- like even afraid to share this with people, because I feel like I was just such. I was at the lowest, you know, and I and I was on the road, and I went out, and this was right near the end. This was like November. I remember it was November because I remember what city I was in, and I, I. It had just been on stage in front of like 300 people. And that day, I probably, I mean, I probably made, you know, a lot of money. And I remember 30 people coming up to me after saying stuff, you know, because that's what you do to a motivational speaker, you know. Like, and, you're so great. Oh, Good yeah, job. Thank you. That you was changed wonderful. my life. And I'm like, in, in me, I'm just sitting there, like, in my warped world going, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Whatever, you know. And, I remember getting off stage and then getting in my rental car and I'm all alone. And then I drive to the airport and I'm all alone. And I get on the plane and I fly home. And by the end, it took longer to use because of the process and everything. And so I, I land at like 9 o'clock at night. I haven't seen my kids in six days. Probably haven't seen my kids for the whole year in all reality because I've just been checked out. And... I go to meet my dealer and this is a Saturday night and it took me like an extra two hours. So I wasted two hours where I could have seen him before they went to bed. 
I went to go meet a guy. I get my stuff, you know. I own some retail stores in Salt Lake. And when I'm driving home, I'm like, I, I don't want to get home and then I'm going to want to see Annie, you know. I'm, I don't want to get home and then use. So I stopped at one of my stores. And I had one pill, right? And because it's all I could I all a guy had at the time. I, you know, it's like freaking 10 o'clock at night, you know. So I go and get one. I go to thing. I was go to use. I stop in my store. I go in the bathroom, and I was first of all disgusted at my store. I was like, "Guys, clean the store up, right?" Bathroom is disgusting, and I go in the bathroom, and I go to use, and it falls on the floor. This nasty, disgusting floor didn't even phase me. Didn't even phase me, and it didn't just fall on the floor. It was like used on the floor, basically. Like fell out of the capsule type. Ish. Like, don't want to go into details, but not... It, that moment was the lowest moment of my life okay. because it was basically like licking a floor at that okay. point. And that's how desperate I was. And three, four hours earlier, I was standing on stage talking about, you know, being a good dad and that type of stuff. You get to learn a lot about people when you do a podcast, don't you? I don't think I've ever shared that with anybody. (laughs) This is really cool. Thank you. It's kind of hard. So here's my question. So at this point, how long have you been married? Um, We were um, like three years, five five years. Okay. Oh, so at this point, we're at at the end. When you're at your lowest of seven years. Seven years. Yeah. You've got one kid, two kids? So... Um, so I've been clean since January 26, 2009. So we had two. Okay. Yeah. Parker was just born. Did you ever feel like you're, this will ruin your marriage? Oh my gosh. Like, that's what I was so afraid of. Like I kept it from her for a long time because. Did she know something? she, She knew. So she, I kept it from her for a long time. And, but I was traveling so much, you know, and when I come home, it was easier to hide it. You know, my lifestyle was, it was such that it kind of allowed it to be easy, but I kind of, um, I, I don't know. Uh, but yeah. So you're starting, your marriage is starting to fall apart. Yeah. I mean, it, it was falling apart because it just wasn't, I wasn't there anymore. You know, I was so focused on the pills and all that stuff. Even when I was there, it was like, I was overdoing it. Like I would go use and then I would go overboard with my love, you yeah. know? And I would remember, and there was one time when I would use, I used and I wrote sticky notes and I wrote a nice thing about my wife, like probably 500 different things, maybe not 500, maybe like 100. But I wrote them and I put them on sticky notes and they were all over my house. And I remember being so proud, like, look at what a good husband I am and doing all this. Meanwhile, I'm, you know, being such an idiot, you know? And you're gone all the time. Gone all the time. And so, yeah, we got really hard and I told her, I remember once I told her, I called her when I was on the road and I was just, cause it's so up and down and the only way to feel good is to use again. It's the only way, like I didn't have another, because to not feel good for weeks is not fun to have an immediate ability to fix that right now is so hard and so I'm, I would, by then I, I called her and I was just like, I, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this, but I think I have a problem. I'm doing this. I don't know what I need to do, but I know I can fix it. I remember telling her, I know I can fix it. And I, she said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to get rid of everything I have. I'm going to fix it. And I did. And I got rid of everything I had. 
Did she believe like, you? She totally believed me. I've completely ruined trust in my marriage because yeah. of stuff like this. Um, so, so I remember going and I probably took $1,500 worth of Oxy because I would grind it up and put it in capsules so I could travel with it and it was easier and yeah. stuff, you know. So I was really obsessed with this, this process and I went and I dumped them all into the toilet. And I remember as they were going down, just going, what are you doing? Like, why are you even doing this? It's not even that big of a deal. This is part of your life. You it's know. what it's what keeps you going. It's what's so it's making c- you successful. You it's yeah. I'm sure all these thoughts are going through your head of why this is good for you. Yeah. So that way you can justify why you can continue to do it. Yeah. So, um, so I told her, and then, but it was just easy for me to hide still, and so I would go three months on and then two months off or six months off sometimes, you know, and then I would re-injure my knee or I would have, usually it was when I was doing really good in my life. That was kind of my thing. It was like things were going really well. And so I was feeling good. And so then I would like, like self-sabotage. I don't know. Well, cause you, know? you think, I mean, in my head, I'm thinking you, you're like, I got this. I'm awesome. I can totally do this once <laughs> because I'm doing so good. Yeah. What's one of these going to do? And then it just spirals. That's right? exactly what it's like, man. And gosh, it sucks. It's hard. And then so when I got like to the end of using, I remember she had a really good friend named Rochelle and she was over at her house and they were talking. And I think Rochelle might have said, hey, is Robbie okay? Because... Love is blind, man. My wife is so good. She's so kind. She's so loving. She's so forgiving. She's mm-hmm. like, like. You don't want to. You don't want to see the. She doesn't want to see it, you know. And so, I'm sitting out in my car, and I was so high functioning. I was still going to the gym. I was still like, I mean, I was like the most high functioning like addict, you know. And she comes out, and I'm sitting in my car. And I'd used that morning, so I was kind of still, I was kind of coming down. And um, she knocks on the window, and she's like, are you okay? And I was, oh, it like snapped out of me. Oh, I'm totally fine, you know, faking it. And then I go inside, and Annie just looked at me, and she said, I just want to ask you, and I just want you to know you can tell me, are you using again? And I, I remember that moment just saying, you have the strength, just tell her. And I did, and... It was like, oh my gosh, that was the hardest because disappointing the people you love is not easy, you know. I've been there, man. It takes a lot of strength to do that. That dark, dark, dark moment where you feel like there's nothing left. To just reach out and ask somebody for help. Yeah. People feel like that is weakness. That that is giving up or that there's shame in that. I am here to tell everyone listening to this within your shot of whatever, for share with your family, anybody, there is no greater moment of strength in that moment of vulnerability when you reach out and ask somebody for help. That is the greatest strength that we as human beings can ever find is looking to someone else to be able to find the strength to go on and move forward from a dark moment. And the coolest part of your story is that you did that in this moment and you had somebody in your life who looked back 
and extended her hand and it changed everything for you. Yeah, it did, man. How did you do that? So I think there's so many people out there listening that are like maybe in this position or have been in this position. How did you turn that? How did you finally get to where, I mean, you haven't used since, right? So mm-hmm. what? how did you get to that point? What did it take? Um, so the moment like that, that I came clean, it was like, now I need to, I, I, I was high functioning in my life because I focused a hundred percent on personal development and communication skills. How does the brain work? How do you talk to people? Right. So I thought I know what I need. Okay. And so I need some anchors at this point. So that means that I need people. It means I need sound, oddly enough. Um, I need things that I can anchor back to so that I can remember this. My wife said, so what do you have left? I gave her everything I had left. My wife's so amazing. So here's what she did. (laughs) So she took it, and she said she threw it away, but she took it and she put it underneath my bed. So I slept on it. And it was that close to me. And she said she did that because she wanted to be there because she'd seen me go through withdrawals before and she knew I was going to go through and she didn't know if it was safe. We went to the doctor and everything and said, what do we do? And the doctor gave me some stuff to kind of help me through the withdrawal symptoms and stuff. But she did that. And um, I remember going down and sitting on the couch and I said, I've got to find an album. And there's this album by a band called Crossfade never even heard of them before but I've heard one song and then the whole song ends up being about addiction to me because that's where I was at and that's the way I heard it and every time it comes on it can bring me back to it to help me remember remember, you know Um, I drove up to a facility to go through um, because I was at about 380s a day at this point and so I went up um, to a facility to go through this, like, drug thing, you know? And I went in, and they were interviewing me, and I remember thinking to myself, this, is, this isn't this is my path right now. Um, and this is maybe going to come off as maybe not great advice, Matt, but this is my journey, so I'm just sharing it. Um, I thought, this is something that my wife and I need to discuss more because I was still high from the previous day. And I wasn't, I hadn't felt anything yet. And I haven't told Annie, I said, I want to do this safely, but I want to feel this. Sick as that sounds, I wanted to go through well, withdrawals. I've actually heard that from a couple different people where it, I don't know, maybe, and from my experience of just even anger, sadness, sometimes feeling it is how you grieve. You know what I'm saying? I knew that if I got off easy this time, you'd go back. I'd I'd go back, and so I was like, I knew what withdrawals were. I'd I'd weaned myself before, you know, and and all that. But I wanted to I wanted to feel it, and my wife kept him because she didn't want me to really, but you know, there were times where I would go and look for him still, even there for the first little bit. When I turned a corner was not immediately. Um, 
So the first little while, I didn't go to work for two and a half weeks. Three three weeks of withdrawals, about maybe about five weeks of withdrawals. Um, the withdrawal symptoms were terrible for the first two weeks, though. Like I couldn't sleep, I couldn't yeah. eat, I couldn't do anything. I had no energy, I had no joy. Um, I remember my friend took me to go paintballing, and I just sat there. Everybody else played, and I just sat there. It was terrible. I just I never. They had this whole thing planned, and I couldn't even participate. I didn't have any energy, you know. That was probably a week, a couple, couple days after, whatever. And then getting back to work for me, now I was focused. I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta do something well, and I'm gonna do it well. So I really just pushed myself into my work, and getting better at that. Um, and I got rid of every single person that I could have ever participated in that behavior with. Um, I just removed them from my life. I called them. I called all the people that I could get it from, and I just said, this is what I'm doing now, and I want um, to have your support in it, so um, please do, because most were friends. You yeah, know? so you had to tell them, please don't contact me. Please yeah. kind of stay away. Like, I'm sorry, but this is what I have to do. Yeah, and every one of them was respectful every time. You know, they were, but they're going through their own thing, too. Yeah. They're going, I want I want to do that, but I know where you're going to end up, you know, because it's so hard. Um, I had my wife, and I had a firm desire to not be that anymore. What year, when is the last time you've used? Um, 20, 2009. Okay. So it'll be 10 years. How do you keep now? Congratulations, man. Yeah, Thank that's you. That's freaking awesome, dude. <laughs> I mean, I have one time when I had uh, prostate <laughs> my like not prostate my uh but what does men have when they can't have kids anymore that thing that sectomy oh vasectomy yeah that was the worst man because I was like I'm so hyper aware now to give people yeah. like an idea like I I I because I was a seeker I mean I pulled stuff out of friends cabinets at times you know mm-hmm. and I always felt terrible about that but um I I being someone that. I don't know. I lost my train of thought, Matt. I want to go back to the thing where you looked at me and you're like, this might not be good advice. I just want to go back to that for just a sec because I think your process is your process and you have been able to come out of this thing and the reason why you came out of this thing and this is what the research tells us and um, it's because you had connections. Mm -hmm. No, that's for sure. In fact, the day... Mm-hmm. that I came clean to my wife, you know, she came and talked to me and I was like devastated, but I called a bunch of people. I called my dad. I called my friend, Sean. I called my mm-hmm. friend, Troy, you know, I called my ecclesiastical leader, you know, I mean, I called the people that I trusted and I, you know, I talked to them and I just said, this is where I'm at. You know, I involved people in my, in the, sh- in the feeling that I had, cause I was so ashamed. I and was that's so what, ashamed. That's what treatment centers do for people who don't have connections, who've burned all those bridges and have cut people out of their lives. And the treatment centers, the good ones build connections. Yeah. And that's why people get better because they're connected. And for you, treatment would, it didn't, wasn't necessary because you had connections in your life. Yeah. And that's the thing that we're learning more and more um, that the, I mean, people say the opposite of addiction is sobriety. 
But really the opposite of addiction is connection. I like that. I, I would agree. I didn't, I didn't say that. I stole that from somebody. <laughs> but, I, I still, but it rings true. I love though. it. It's very true because the thing that happens when, when you get addicted to opioids especially, there's this part of your brain actually called the opioid sensors in your brain. And those opioid sensors are directly linked to this really important and very, very important chemical neurotransmitter in your brain called oxytocin. And when I look at my daughter or my son or my wife and I feel love, my brain floods with oxytocin. When I use opioids, my brain floods with oxytocin. And so I literally create a relationship built on the love chemical with this drug. Oh my gosh, dude. And so the withdrawal part of it is, yes, physical, because there is a physical component to this. But more so, there's an emotional component to this. Oh, man. Where you become so completely dependent upon this substance for your own well-being that as you come off, you literally believe you're alone in this world. And if you have people surrounding you to prove you wrong, you can do it. But if you are alone in this world and the only thing you have is your drug, it's impossible to come off. So all these people who are homeless or live alone or have cut off all ties, treatment is the best option for you, fortunately, because of your life and what you've chosen and the connections that you have. You were able to do it. But that's not the situation for everybody, and I'm really glad it was for you. Again, people listening to this who have family members who are struggling with addiction, it is the epidemic that we face as a society at this point that we continually shove our heads into the sand and ignore. And if we continue to do this, these numbers are going to rise exponentially as they have been. It's worse every single year. Yeah. It was 65,000 in 2016. It was 72,000 in 2017. Who knows what it'll be in 2018. And if we can somehow, and that's part of the reason why I want to do this podcast, because I do the addiction thing every single day of my life. If we can somehow reach out to those people instead of shun them and ignore them, that is the very answer that these people need who are in the deepest, darkest throes of addiction. And that's why, that's what brought you out. I mean, you told us your story. I'm not making this shit up anymore. You just told us your story, man. That's the thing that got you out of it. Dude, it's 100% true. I mean, love is the answer. Like, that was the answer for me. Like, <clears throat> I remember my buddy Troy. <laughs> it was great. He, 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 when I told him, he looked at me and he goes, well, it's not the type of behavior that I expected from you, but I want you to know I love you no matter what. <laughs> and um, it was just so, it was so truthful with me. It was like, he gets it. Like, you know, where there were some where I would tell him, they're like, you know, it's very different. I don't know. It's like like a less of a loving feeling and more of a like. I don't. I don't get how you could. You know, they don't get that. I I I don't want to say I didn't choose it because I definitely chose it. Maybe I, don't know. I mean it feels like the Purdue people chose it for me with their what you just told me because that freaks me out. That <laughs> whole thing. It's it's very gray. It's not a. I chose. And that's that's part of the myth, right? It's like these people are choosing to stay addicted. That's bullshit.
bullshit, people. That is not true. Man, I definitely did not feel like I you wanted to stay there. You did not choose to be addicted to this thing. And I definitely felt like it, I definitely did not want to stay there. When you no, are there, no you don't want to be there. No. I did not want to be there. Okay, so you're 10 years sober. Mm-hmm. How are you staying there? Because everyone, I feel like, has their moments where they they can get there. You get in that deep, dark moment, and you reach out, and you're trying. You get help. Now, how do you stay there? Because yeah, life happens. Yeah, things get hard. Things go rough again. Finances, marriage, kids, crazy. How do you not turn back to that? Well, first of all, if it's not very easy for me to get it because doctors are smarter about prescribing, I think that would be a good step. <laughs> But you got it off the internet, so we all know you can get it. <laughs> Anybody can get it anytime they want. Yeah. True story. Um, I'll tell you what worked for me early on was connecting with people that I, I knew I could trust and then informing them of my situation. I did that Weird literally. The connection was the first thing you said. Really? Well, you literally said, what did, what, what did I do the first in the early stage of this? Uh, I connected with people I could trust. Oh. <laughs> you, need, that, you didn't even know that's what you're yeah, saying. No, I just that's I'm thinking. The answer. So when I think about stuff, this is what this is. You always trying to figure out my brain. I can tell you're always like, I like the way you think. You know, you always say stuff like that to me and stuff. <laughs> well, when I think, I think in pictures. So I go back to the memory and I think of it. And so when I go back, I have such a vivid memory. Like I remember Kevin. I remember like things when I was two years old. Like I have really vivid memory, and I. I have memory of going through this. And the day of, I remember what it was like. I remember what it was like outside. I remember what shirt I was wearing. I remember everything about that day and the following time, you know. And it was all about connecting with the right people. And then as I progressed through it, it was first week out. My friend Jason was with me. I called I called him on my way out. I said, Jason, I want you to know what I'm going through. And then when I got there to the airport, I met him and I said, Jason, I want you to know what I'm going through. I said, if you want to call my wife, Annie, and ask her any questions, you can. But I want you to just monitor me, be around me, be my friend. Let's hang out as much as we can this week. You know, I want to stay clean or whatever. And I want your help. And it was every road crew manager I had from that point forward because I didn't choose my crew with that company that I was with at that time. They put, a, they put my crew out there. So whoever they were, I would just go learn. And man, it's funny that I... I never realized that's why I started to get so good with my crew is I just really needed them, you know, because I, I now that I'm I, I'm a speaker trainer, I work with speakers and they a lot of times they'll talk about their crew and stuff. And I thought, man, I never had a bad crew in my ever. I never one time had a crew that I wasn't cool with. And I think it's because I knew how much I needed them. You know, my best friends were out with me, you know, and so I just I always informed them of where I was at with, without being ashamed of it, you know, even then just saying, I just, I, I wanted so bad not to be an addict. I'm so much better than that in my head. You know, I'm going, because I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what an addict was. I didn't know. I just, that behavior was not like me, you know, and some of the stuff that I said and did and whatever, you know, I just didn't feel like me and I wanted so bad not to be that so I just made sure and told everybody around me that that needed to know without me going I don't know I don't know without me looking like I was trying to I I don't know Matt (laughs) but that's the way I felt I was gonna say that's probably what bonded you to this your crew as well is you say I needed them they knew you needed them because you let them know you let them in 
lot of people don't open up, aren't honest with some of these things, aren't real. And so then it's like, how, how's anyone supposed to ever help you if you're never telling them what you need help with? Yeah. You know what I mean? If everyone's so closed off, no one's going to help you. No one's going to be there. They don't know how. Yeah. So you opened up letting them in. And so they automatically knew you needed them and they were willing to be there. Yeah. And the one thing I would just like one quick suggestion I would give is just like when people joke about it, I don't. I never joke oh, about opiates. Ever. It, what do you mean it joke about it, opiate addiction, it drugs, like the the when they make a joke about it when they're just like, Oh, we can just go I'm just like, Look, you don't even know, exactly. man. So that's not it's a no no for me. So like the moment so I'll still travel and I'll meet I mean, when I do, I'm around people all the time, you know, and people will bring stuff up like that. They'll make a joke about it. In fact, when I when I called my my dad and my stepmom at the time, um, and said, hey, I have, I need you guys to come down and talk. I was going to tell him about it. She walked in, and I was upstairs bawling, and my wife was at the top of the stairs, and she goes, oh, boy. She goes, do you guys need the Percocets or the drugs? And I was just, and Annie goes, not a good time, because she was offering that to me in that moment because I was sad, and that yes. was her joke, that type of joke. It's a joke, but it's also the reality, right? Yeah. We want to numb. Yeah. So you're like, oh, awesome. That's what I've been doing. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because even talking with Sam and talking with some of the different people we've had on here, something that is so personal and so has harmed your life and your soul, it's not, it's not funny. Yeah. It's, and it's not funny because, and I'm not thinking about me when I say, I'm I'm over it. Like I'm, I'm so past opiates. Like I really, it's not a craving. I don't have, I don't have any cravings. I don't have any desires. I don't have any thoughts. I don't think in, I, I changed my thinking. The moment an opiate thought comes to my mind, I change it to the pain that I felt the day that I told my wife. I, 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 just, I go back to that moment because that's what it is. An opiate to me is that moment with my wife where she said, are you using? And I said, yes. I don't want to live that again. Yeah. So opiate doesn't even, it doesn't even attempt to come into my brain. So when someone jokes about it, I'm going, you don't know what you're joking about. Please don't joke about that because it's not. Go hide those away. Go lock them up. Don't let your kids near them. You know, make sure that you're aware of it. You know, like now when my wife had our son or if there's any pills in our house, I know she knows exactly how many there are, not how many bottles, how many. She knows the shape, what they're in, because I know the shape and I know which ones are which and, and all that stuff. And so when she had her baby, she would keep them with her. And I remember one time they were downstairs and I saw the bottle and I went right upstairs to Annie and I said, your pills are right downstairs. And I said, I don't want them in my house. I'm afraid to have them in my house. I don't need it there. I don't need the, the idea of them here. So if you want to have them, you need to keep your pills with you. I said, how many are in the bottle? She goes, I don't know. And I said, we can't do that. We can't do that because it's a we thing, you know. Even though it's 100% me being proactive and saying don't do that, it's me informing her that that needs to be done for us to to prosper. I I did a session one time with a family where the daughter was, so it was dad, mom, daughter, and the daughter was not a severe alcoholic. We're talking like blackout drunk, like going to parties, getting raped, not remembering it, like bad, bad, bad news. And the dad was like, well, I think I should be able to drink 
even though this happens to my daughter. And I had this epiphany where I was like, well, your daughter's boyfriend is abusive. And he beats her and he hurts her. And you bring him in and you have dinner with him every single night. And she stares at him. And she knows that he's abused her for years and allows all these terrible things to happen and creates all this chaos in her life. And you bring him into the dinner table and you have this conversation with him. And we family members don't realize that that's what we're doing. We're bringing in the abusers of our family members into our homes and we don't protect them from it. And that's the same story you're telling, right? Any unknowingly brought in your abuser into the home and you stared him down and saw, felt fear and saw him for what he really was. And holding that boundary becomes something that's extremely important for people who are in recovery. And I think that's a awesome, amazing, beautiful example of you taking charge of what you need and asking for your needs to be met when many times the shame is so overwhelming and great that people will be like, I can't ask for that. I can't ask for them to take the pills away because I don't deserve that. Like, I should be stronger. There's something wrong with me that I can't look at an orange bottle and not feel these things. I'm the problem. When in reality, all you got to do is look at your loved one and be like, hey, uh, can you get that out of here? Because I can't have that here. It's that simple. But reality says it's the abuser that we're bringing into the home. And you have every right to ask your abuser to leave. Hmm. I like that's that. Good. I've never heard that, but I really like that. Like yeah, that to awesome. me, that's so visual. And I love what you said about this. It's not just a me, it's a we. Because it's the truth. When... You know, any of us who are married or have loved ones, the people we care about, friends, like you want to protect them. And it does become a we thing. You know, anything that happens with my husband, it isn't just him. It's me too, because I care about him enough that I want to help him. And I, you know, I know your wife and I know that she wants to help you, obviously. It's no secret. And so I think it's like Matt said, it's really cool how vocal you were about the whole thing. Yeah. So in this whole thing, (laughs) what would you say? I mean, just narrowing things down. We've talked a lot. And by the way, this is amazing. Like what Matt has said is so true. This is such a problem. This is such an epidemic. And I think I'm sure there's people out there that maybe take things every day and don't even realize it has become an addiction. You know what I mean? Or that it is a problem. Or you... The, the steps that come next, the uh, lying to yourself and then lying to your loved ones and then, you know, hiding and all these steps that go towards making it worse, getting deeper, getting, you know what I'm saying? So I think this is, this is huge to give people maybe some tips and some ideas of how to come out of it, that it's a real thing. And it's like with anything else. You're not, I, you said before we started, and I thought it was so awesome. You're like, this is my habit. I think is what you said. This is not me. This is not who I am. And I love that. I feel like we all have something that maybe is an addiction or a problem. That's not us. That's not who we are. It is a problem we're working on, but that is not who we are. So what would your, I guess, you know, finding strength 
was the your biggest thing you learned from this whole thing? Um, man, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> First of all, I, I while you were thinking that, I thought, let me just think of some of the easiest tips that I got from because I I don't want to I don't want it to appear as though I didn't go through therapy. I mean, I went through many therapists. Um, I went through a lot of therapy sessions. I had one guy named Rex Cokerhands who passed away, and he was incredible. Um, he gave me one bit of advice. He says, he said, you have to get rid of all the half-truths in your life. Find the half-truths as an addict and get rid of them. Because for me, I was going to my store in Draper. I owned a retail store in, uh, in Draper, one in South Jordan. When I'd said, I'm going to the Draper store, I'm going up to Draper, I was. But I also was stopping at my dealer on the way. And that half-truth needed to be removed because I, I needed to be more clear. So it got to a point, and you'll notice me correct my language all the time mm-hmm. because I, 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 I find I, I don't like my words to not have truthfulness to them even later. I want them to have truth later too, which means I want them to have full integrity the moment I say them. I want them to be researched and know what I say is real and I'm not. So sometimes when you ask me a question, I take longer to answer it because I don't want to just answer it. I want to know. But those half-truths, the moment I started to realize there were so many of them in my addiction that I could, and then I started identifying, I just removed them. That was a, that was a huge bit of advice. Um, what I've learned as far as finding strength is our thoughts and words are so meaningful and they have direction. Our thoughts do and our words. We have a past, we have a present, we have a future. And if our thoughts in the present are only on our past, then we really struggle to get to the, you know, to a better future. And so finding strength in the challenges that I've had in my past allows me to like fully embrace my present and be me and be present, you know. Um, But if I don't control that and I start to think of my past in a more detrimental way instead of an overcoming way, like where I'm looking back going, how can I be empowered by what I did, what I learned, what my experiences were? I hate what I went through. I'm grateful for the wisdom it gave me. You know, if I can look back with direction of moving forward, then I can still use benefit from my past. With my words, my body hears my words, whether I want it to or not. And because I'm a public speaker and I know how what happens once we hear things, the things that I say matter. I need to be aware of what my language is. I need to be aware of what words I'm using about myself. If I say I can't, if I say I won't, if I use these absolutes about my addiction or about my life or about anything, then I create untruth that, my, that I hear. So when I say something, I need to be aware of that. So try and hear what you say. If you say, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to eat healthier today. Like if you say that, your body hears it, right? It can become more of a reality. But if I say, I'm an idiot, just those three words. Yeah, even things like, oh, I screwed up. Yeah. That's such a negative energy that you're taking on. Yeah. So, and it is. And the negative energy came from yourself. 
because you said the words. So just think them through a little bit, right? And then, and then just be, uh, you know, aware of what those words are when you're talking about yourself. If there's one bit of advice I could give to people that I've learned in, in my life, not just from my addiction, is that those words penetrate yourself. So you got to learn how to like yourself, think you got to think well of yourself. You got to talk well of yourself, and that way, your future, you know, and they're you're using this direction of you know a better future. Use when you do. Does that make any sense? Yeah. No, I love it. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, my little thing. I would so coming off of what you said, and my coming. This comes from my husband. I feel like I'm constantly quoting something he said, but he talks about he He's doesn't so awesome. he doesn't really think there's many mistakes in life. And I agree. He's like, we don't call it a mistake. We call it a lesson. Because everything we've done wrong, everything, every past thing, we've learned from it. And it's made us who we are. So it's hard to call it a mistake when we've grown from it. We've become a better person because of it. Yeah. So I feel like that's what you take from it. And I think that's awesome. That's what I want to take from any, any place I mess up, anything I say wrong. I can always, you know, apologize, learn from it, and try to become a better person because of it. I love that. I think my uh, greatest kind of takeaway in summation of this whole thing is that, you know, we largely ignore the problems that scream at us because it's really easy to deafen ourselves to the things that seem the loudest. And one of the problems that continually screams at us is that people don't want to feel their pain. People want to ignore suffering and people want to run from the lessons that they can learn when they come out of the other side of feeling darkness and suffering. And meeting with you, Robbie, and getting to know you and becoming like super close with Bethany as we've done this journey together. The greatest lesson that finding strength teaches people continually week after week is that we don't have to run from our suffering anymore. That we can run through it and come out on the other side of it better. That's so true. In fact, you know, while you're thinking about this and you're saying it like getting better it's not just getting better for you too. Like, what? Who do you learn from? You learn from people who've been through this stuff, man. That's where you learn from people. The reason Kevin is so valuable to me, Kevin's been through some stuff, man, and he's so amazing, and he gives it to me freely. He gives me his knowledge, his wisdom freely. He shares that, you know. When I went through this. And I've had the opportunity to come out on the other side because I know so many haven't. I've lost. I can't keep them on two hands how many people I've lost to opiates and heroin. And when you think about what you learn and what wisdom you gain from it, you go through this and down the road there's someone else that you get to benefit. And there's a joy that comes from that. I have so many people you, it's amazing because I don't realize how many people I've helped because I'm not in the addiction world. I'm in I'm a totally different field. But when people find out I've been through it, they say, I've got a son. 
and they say you talk about people being able to see and magnify or use some word you use to describe me, which <laughs> thank you, you're so kind, dude. But to magnify, like I have people call me weekly saying my son is going through this. We talk to him, and I do. And I have kids that are you know 17, 18 years old that parents have said, you're the one person that can get through to him. Because I go, I've been the 17 and 18-year-old kid, and I've got a good memory. And I, can, I know what they need as in someone who's going through addiction and a 17, 18-year-old, you know? And that's a, call it a gift or whatever, it's, it's an ability that I want to be able to magnify, you know, because it does. There's so much of it out there. And so I want to leave with one last thing because for sure, I don't know if you got more questions, mm -hmm. but right now, I didn't know if you guys had even intention of me talking about this, but Prop 2 in Utah is a big deal. And it, to me, has to do with the opiate epidemic. And I have done my research and believe that there's more research that others should do if they want to make the best decision for the state. And so I would encourage everybody to con consider the opiate epidemic as completely tied to Prop 2 because it is. And I know that because of who I've worked with, who I've talked to, and what research I've personally done myself. So do your research. Not saying... No, I love that, and I agree 100%. Um, and all of this, as far as like you reaching out to people, you helping people, everybody trying to help each other, the podcast in general, and even talking about prop two and doing your research, it's all about connection. Everything is about connection. Connect to those people. Talk about things. No one wants to talk about it. Even this whole prop two thing, no one wants to talk about it because it's <laughs> controversial, right? Let's talk. Why do we have to fight? Let's talk. Let's learn from each other. Whether it's that or whether it's the things we've gone through. Let's learn from each other. So if we don't connect, we'll never learn. I love it. Thank you, guys. This has been enlightening, connecting, <laughs> amazing. I had a feeling, man. I knew I knew bringing you on here, dude. <laughs> I knew we'd get into some good stuff. And people, I hope that you come out of this episode feeling like you have something to take away. Uh, we love our Finding Strength community. Thank you guys so much for the support. And we will see you next time on the next episode of Finding Strength. Thank you, guys. Holy crap. That was fantastic. Thanks for sticking around for the whole episode. Like I said, it was a little bit longer than we normally do. And it was worth it, wasn't it? Always is. Again, if you're interested in um, sponsoring the podcast, we are looking for people to help us out, help us to send the Finding Strength message. If you are interested in doing that, please contact us through Facebook or Instagram or my website, MatthewQuackenbush.com or uh, our email, which is FindingStrengthPodcast at gmail please go hit up brightenaday.org and donate. We're really excited about some upcoming stuff going on with Brighten a Day. 
we are trying to help out a bunch of families. And if you're interested, or families for Christmas, if you're interested in giving some love and hope to a family this Christmas, a family who's recently lost a child is usually the family that we pick for Brighton today. Um, contact us and let us know what, you, and we'll give you plenty of options for helping. Go through brightonaday.org, or you can contact the podcast, Finding Strength Podcast, through Facebook and Instagram, and we'll get you hooked up with many different ways to help. I know we're always asking a lot, guys, but it's because we want to do a lot. We need the support, and if you are willing to give us that support and you have the means to give us that support, we are going to keep asking because we want to help a lot of people. Again, thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you to my co-host, Bethany. Thank you to Tenny's Pizza for being our first and favorite sponsor. Thank you to uh, the band that does our intro music, Death From Above 1979. Really cool band. Check them out as well. I want to thank the Finding Strength community and listeners for the support. We love all of you immensely, and we can't thank you enough for the feedback we get every week. Please stick around and share this with people. Go subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify and Anchor and wherever you get your podcasts so we can get you a fresh episode every week. And keep sharing the message as much as you can. Let us know what you want to hear. We love all of you like you don't even know. We'll see you again next week on the next episode of Finding Strength. Thanks, guys. <laughs>